0: he came of age. A visit to the Tunisian battlefields tells a bit more. For more than half a century, time and weather have purified the ground at El Gitar and Kasserine and Longstop. But the slit trenches remain, and rusty sea ration cans, and shell fragments scattered like seed corn. The lay of the land also remains, the vulnerable low ground, the superior high ground incessant reminders of how, in battle, topography is fate. Yet even when the choreography of armies is understood, or the movement of this battalion or that rifle squad, we crave intimate detail of individual men in individual foxholes. Where, precisely, was Private Anthony N. Marfione when he died on December 24, 1942? What were the last conscious thoughts of Lieutenant Hill P. Cooper before he left this earth on April 9, 1943? Was Sergeant Harry K. Midkiff alone when he crossed over on November 25, 1942? Or did some good soul squeeze his hand and caress his forehead? The dead resist such intimacy. The closer we try to approach, the farther they draw back like rainbows or mirages. They have outsoared the shadow of our night, to reside in the wild uplands of the past. History can take us there, almost. Their diaries and letters, their official reports and unofficial chronicles, including documents that until now have been hidden from view since the war, reveal many moments of exquisite clarity over a distance of sixty years. Memory, too, has transcendent power, even as we swiftly move toward the day when not a single participant remains alive to tell his tale, and the epic of World War II forever slips into national mythology. The author's task is to authenticate, to warrant that history and memory give integrity to the story, to aver that all this really happened. But the final few steps must be the reader's, Or hear the listeners. For among mortal powers, only imagination can bring back the dead. No one today can understand the ultimate triumph of the Allied powers in World War II in 1945 without a grasp of the large drama that unfolded in North Africa in 1942 and 1943. The liberation of Western Europe is a triptych, each panel informing the others. First, North Africa then Italy, and finally the invasion of Normandy and the subsequent campaigns across France, the Low Countries, and Germany. From a distance of 60 years, we can see that North Africa was a pivot point in American history, the place where the United States began to act like a great power, militarily, diplomatically, strategically, tactically. Along with Stalingrad and Midway, North Africa is where the Axis enemy forever lost the initiative in World War II. It's where Great Britain slipped into the role of junior partner in the Anglo-American alliance, and where the United States first emerged as the dominant force it would remain into the next millennium. None of it was inevitable, not the individual deaths, nor the ultimate Allied victory, nor eventual American hegemony. History, like particular fates, hung in the balance, waiting to be tipped. Measured by the proportions of the later war of Normandy or the Bulge. The first engagements in North Africa were tiny skirmishes between platoons and companies involving at most a few hundred men. Within six months, the campaign metastasized to battles between army groups comprising hundreds of thousands of soldiers. That scale persisted for the duration. North Africa gave the European war its immense canvas and implied through 70,000 Allied killed, wounded, and missing, the casualties to come. No large operation in World War II surpassed the invasion of North Africa in complexity, daring, risk, or as the official U.S. Army Air Force's history concludes, the degree of strategic surprise achieved. Moreover, this was the first campaign undertaken by the Anglo-American Alliance. North Africa defined the coalition and its strategic course, prescribing how and where the Allies would fight for the rest of the war. North Africa is where the prodigious weight of American industrial might began to tell, where brute strength emerged as the most conspicuous feature of the Allied arsenal, although not, as some historians suggest, its only redeeming feature. Here the Americans in particular first recognized, viscerally, the importance of generalship, and audacity, guile and celerity, initiative and tenacity. North Africa is where the Allies agreed on unconditional surrender as the only circumstance under which the war could end. It is where the controversial strategy of first contesting the Axis in a peripheral theatre, the Mediterranean, was effected at the expense of an immediate assault on Northwest Europe, with the campaigns in Sicily, Italy, and southern France following in train. It is where Allied soldiers figured out tactically how to destroy Germans, where the fable of the Third Reich's invincibility dissolved, where, as one senior German general later acknowledged, many Axis soldiers lost confidence in their commanders and were no longer willing to fight to the last man. It is where most of the West's great battle captains emerged, including men whose names would remain familiar generations later. Eisenhower, Patton, Bradley, Montgomery, Rommel, and others who deserve rescue from obscurity. North Africa is where American soldiers became killing mad, where the hard truth about combat was first revealed to many. It is a very, very horrible war, dirty and dishonest, not at all that glamour war that we read about in the hometown papers one soldier wrote his mother in Ohio. For myself and the other men here, we will show no mercy. We have seen too much for that. North Africa is where irony and skepticism, the twin lenses of modern consciousness, began refracting the experiences of countless ordinary soldiers. The last war was a war to end war. This war is to start him up again, said a British Tommy thus perfectly capturing the ironic spirit that flowered in North Africa. It was a time of cunning and miscalculation, of sacrifice and self-indulgence, of ambiguity, love, malice, and mass murder. There were heroes, but it was not an age of heroes as clean and lifeless as Alabaster. At Carthage, demigods and poltroons lie side by side. The United States would send 61 combat divisions into Europe, nearly 2 million soldiers. These were the first. We can fairly surmise that not a single man interred at the Carthage Cemetery sensed on September 1, 1939, that he would find an African grave. Yet it was with the invasion of Poland on that date that the road to North Africa began, and it is then and there that our story must begin. September 1st, 1939, was the first day of a war that would last for 2,174 days, and it brought the first dead in a war that would claim an average of 27,600 lives every day, or 1,150 an hour, or 19 a minute, or one death every three seconds. Within four weeks of the blitzkrieg attack on Poland by 60 German divisions, The lightning war had killed more than 100,000 Polish soldiers, and 25,000 civilians had perished in bombing attacks. Another 10,000 civilians, mostly middle-class professionals, had been rounded up and murdered, and 22 million Poles now belonged to the Third Reich. Take a good look around Warsaw, Adolf Hitler told journalists during a visit to the shattered Polish capital. That is how I can deal with any European city. France and Great Britain had declared war against the German aggressors on September 3rd, but fighting subsided for six months while Hitler consolidated his winnings and plotted his next move. That came in early April 1940, when Wehrmacht troops seized Denmark and attacked Norway. A month later, 136 German divisions swept into the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France. Winston S. Churchill a short, stout, lisping politician of indomitable will and oratorical genius, who on May 10th became both Britain's Prime Minister and Defense Minister, told President Franklin D. Roosevelt, the small countries are simply smashed up, one by one, like matchwood. It was the first of 950 personal messages Churchill would send Roosevelt in the most fateful correspondence of the 20th century. France was not small, but it was smashed up. German tactical miscalculation allowed the British to evacuate 338,000 troops on 900 vessels from the northern port of Dunkirk. But on June 14th, the German spearhead swept across the Place de la Concorde in Paris and unfurled an enormous swastika flag from the Arc de Triomphe. As the French tottered, Germany's partner in the Axis alliance the Italian government of Benito Mussolini also declared war on France and Britain. First they were too cowardly to take part, Hitler said. Now they are in a hurry so that they can share in the spoils. After the French cabinet fled to Bordeaux in shock disarray, a venerable figure emerged to lead the rump government. Marshal Philippe Petain, the hero of Verdun in World War I, and now a laconic, enigmatic 84-year-old, had once asserted, they call me only in catastrophes. Even Pétain had never seen a catastrophe like this one, and he sued for terms. Berlin obliged. Rather than risk having the French fight on from their colonies in North Africa, Hitler devised a clever armistice. The southern 40% of France, excluding Paris, would remain under the sovereignty of the Pétain government and unoccupied by German troops. From a new capital in the resort town of Vichy, France would also continue to administer her overseas empire, including the colonies of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, which together covered a million square miles and included 17 million people, mostly Arab or Berber. France could keep her substantial fleet and an army of 120,000 men in North Africa by pledging to fight all invaders, particularly the British. To enforce the agreement, Germany would keep one and one-half million French prisoners of war as collateral. Pétain so pledged. He was supported by most of France's senior military officers and civil servants, who swore oaths of fidelity to him. A few refused, including a 49-year-old maverick brigadier general named Charles-André-Joseph-Marie de Gaulle who took refuge in London, denounced all deals with the devil, and declared in the name of free France, whatever happens, the flame of French resistance must not and shall not die. Hitler now controlled Europe from the North Cape to the Pyrenees, from the Atlantic Ocean to the River Boog. In September, Germany and Italy signed a tripartite pact with Japan, which had been prosecuting its own murderous campaign in Asia. The Axis assumed a global span. The war is won, the Fuhrer told Mussolini. The rest is only a question of time. That seemed a fair boast. Britain battled on, alone. We are fighting for life and survive from day to day and hour to hour, Churchill told the House of Commons. But German plans to invade across the English Channel were postponed, repeatedly after the Luftwaffe failed to subdue the Royal Air Force. Instead, the bombardment known as the Blitz continued through 1940 and beyond, slaughtering thousands and then tens of thousands of British civilians, even as RAF pilots shot down nearly 2,500 German planes in three months, killing 6,000 Luftwaffe crewmen and saving the nation. Churchill also received help from Roosevelt who nudged the United States away from neutrality, even as he promised to keep Americans out of the war. Roosevelt sent Churchill 50 U.S. Navy destroyers in exchange for the use of British bases in the Caribbean and Western Atlantic, and by the spring of 1941 had pushed through Congress a vast program of lend-lease assistance under the charade of renting out the material. By war's end, the United States had sent its allies 37,000 tanks, 800,000 trucks, nearly 2 million rifles, and 43,000 planes, so many that U.S. pilot training was curtailed because of aircraft shortages. In 1941, though, the British were hanging on by our eyelids, as General Alan Brooke, chief of the Imperial General Staff, put it. Hitler faced other annoying disappointments.